Welcome back to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. The NBA offseason is winding down, and we're just about to get into some actual regular NBA season action. So just a couple of quick announcements before we jump in. First of all, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. If you have any feedback, please reach out to me nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And I'm putting the segment at the beginning of the podcast because we're going to try something a little bit different with this podcast this year. We've done a lot of team-specific work over the past three seasons of the podcast, and we're certainly going to do some of that going forward. But we're going to be branching out a little bit. So instead of only doing team-specific previews, we're going to do a little bit more variation in terms of the content on this podcast. And we're going to start out with that by going over the recently released hashtag basketball NBA power rankings. So I am one of the writers for those power rankings, and I'm here with another one of the writers for the power rankings, Kevin Nye. So Kevin, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Nick. Thanks for uh, having me on. I'm just completely and totally ready to talk about basketball. It has been a particularly long offseason, I feel like, just because so much happened during the first week or so of free agency, and then it's been a lot of quiet on the NBA front. But we, as a website, are doing these NBA power rankings for the first time, picking up on the work done by our colleagues on the WNBA side. And so let's start this off by starting off with the top team in the power rankings. The Los Angeles Clippers were a unanimous number one among the writers for the power rankings. But this feels to me, certainly, a lot more like a playoff ranking than a regular season ranking. I certainly don't think that they're going to have the best overall record by the time we get to the end of the regular season. So what are your thoughts, Kevin, on what we're going to see from the Clippers before May and June? I completely agree about it being a postseason ranking. Uh, Just we're doing that in the preseason. Um, I am really curious to see how many games Paul George actually plays. Uh, my gut tells me it's going to be like 55 or 60. Um, so I don't really, I, I almost don't believe my own number one ranking uh, since we're doing this at the beginning of the season. But of course they'll be good. And the, I mean, they've got a ton of talent all over the place. Um, and if Kawhi plays, of course he's going to play well. And presumably Paul George is going to play well. But, you know, coming off of surgery and all of that, it's, it's a little cloudy for me, but I expect them to win 50 or so games and comfortably make the playoffs and, and take it from there. I think that the Clippers probably have the highest ceiling of any team in the NBA, which is why I put them at number one. But there are some ways in which I could see another team in particular taking over from the Clippers as the team with the highest ceiling in the NBA. So let's move on to that team right now. We had the Milwaukee Bucks as a unanimous number two, and I think that the Bucks showed last season that they are clearly an incredible regular season team that maybe if Budenholzer mixes up the playoff rotations next season a bit more than he did this past year, they can get further than they did in the Eastern Conference playoffs. But ultimately, I think that the only team that has a higher ceiling than the Clippers is Milwaukee if Giannis can develop an average three-point shot. I totally agree. Um, It's a big if, but even if he doesn't improve from deep, and and we would assume that he's going to at least get a little bit better, um, 
I know he's been working on basketball this summer. He's not filming Space Jam 2 every day. Um, but even if he only gets marginally better, he was the MVP and he played, what, like 31 minutes a game last year? What if the Bucks are a little bit worse this year? He's got to play more. He'll be even better. Um, I, I think they're going to be awesome. And adding, I know he's like 45 years old, but adding Korver out there so you can run out these Giannis plus four shooters lineups is just, it's its devastating. They're going to be awesome. I can't wait. Next up, we finally have some lack of unanimity in the power rankings. The Philadelphia 76ers ended up third on this list. I'm not sure that I would think of them as the third best team in the NBA, but I definitely think that they have the third highest odds of making it to the finals. And honestly, most of that is just because there are two teams that are very clearly at the top of the Eastern Conference for me. And there are about six or seven teams in the Western Conference that I think probably belong in a similar tier in terms of championship aspirations. That being said, your championship odds are a lot higher when you don't have to face one of those really tough teams in the first round of the playoffs and just have to basically wait until you make it to the Eastern Conference Finals to face a really difficult opponent. Nick, I'm going to ask real quick. Are you suggesting that the Western Conference is better than the East? I mean, I don't want to put heresy out there, (laughs) but it's really, really difficult not to say that, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the Sixers... The Sixers are one of these teams that the more I think about them, the better I think they're going to be. So I actually had them fifth originally. um, And then seeing the rankings come out and they were third, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. I know the question mark for them is probably the bench. And if you're on Sixers Reddit or Sixers Twitter, their bench is the best bench in the league. So that's nice. Um, But, you know, it's like, it's Shake Milton, Jair Smith, Jonah Bolden. Everyone seems to love uh, Matisse Teibel. Um, Mike Scott is out there getting in fights at NFL games, which I respect. Um, but I don't know if I would recognize those guys if they walk past me on the street. And that's probably not a good sign for the third best team in the NBA's bench. But the starters are so good that I don't know how much it's going to matter. On to another team that is very top heavy, which is kind of a theme of the beginning portion of the podcast. The Los Angeles Lakers have LeBron James and Anthony Davis on the same team. So it's kind of hard to put them anywhere outside of the top five. But this team might be starting Rajon Rondo and Dwight Howard on opening day. And if it were 2009, that would be a fantastic team. But since it's 2019, that's a bit of a problem. I uh, I agree, if you can imagine that. Really? No, I'm shocked. <laughs> I know. It sounds crazy. Um, but I don't it's similar with how it is with uh with Philadelphia. I don't know how much it really matters in the long run. You know, LeBron, regardless of what he says, is gonna dominate the ball, and he's gonna end up trying to get Davis involved, but The biggest thing is that will they have guys who can shoot? Because if you have Davis somewhere near the block, even or if it's the elbow or somewhere extended and LeBron has the ball, you need three other shooters. And call me crazy, but Dwight Howard and Rajon Rondo are not shooters. Um, So, I mean, it's they'll be fine. They'll be good because they have a ton of top end talent like these other teams. But. I mean, JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard doesn't exactly uh, make me 
shake with fear if I'm going against them in the playoffs, unless, like you said, it was 2009. The Houston Rockets traded Chris Paul for Russell Westbrook, among other things, this past offseason. And I think that this team is probably similar in terms of their average level of play. I just think that their variance is so much higher, which makes a lot of sense when you throw in one of the highest variance players in the league and Russell Westbrook in return for one of the best caretaker point guards of all time in Chris Paul. Right. I think the real story with the Rockets is what's going to happen with the race for most turnovers in the NBA this year. It's been Harden. Yeah, it's been Harden versus Westbrook for the last four seasons. They've been one and two. Who's going to cannibalize the other's turnovers? Um, In reality, I don't think this is going to work that well for Russell Westbrook. Harden will be fine because he doesn't appear to need teammates at all. He'll go one on five and get 30 a game. Um, But I just don't really see this working well for Westbrook. He can't shoot. And he's legendarily stationary when he's off the ball. So I just don't see how it's going to work out well for him. And it's, it's kind of sad, but maybe I'm wrong. I just don't really think it's going to go great. I'm willing to be a little bit more optimistic just because Westbrook's going to have a much better spaced floor than he has in many, many years. Very true. But moving on to a team that certainly is not going to struggle in terms of spacing the Denver Nuggets, and they were a bit of a surprise number two seed last season after having missed the playoffs by one game for two consecutive years before that. But ultimately, this is a very young team that I doubt will fall off that much, even if they have maybe, I don't know, worse injury luck, even though they did miss time from Gary Harris and Will Barton last season. And that gets to the point of where I'm a bit concerned about this team, which is What are they going to do on the wing? They have a bunch of power forward type players, Paul Millsap, Jeremy Grant, Juancho Hernan Gomez off the bench, and they have a bunch of shooting guard types like Malik Beasley, Gary Harris, Jamal Murray, but they don't really have a true wing kind of player. So unless we see something spectacular from Michael Porter Jr. this year, that's kind of going to be where I'm concerned with this Nuggets team is small forward slash the wing positions generally. Yeah, you are right to be concerned. It seems like there's a lot of hype around Michael Porter Jr. Um, you never know with a rookie, so I'm not willing to to go all out for him or anything yet. I think maybe the Nuggets are just going to kind of play their own game and not worry about it too much because those those guards, the Gary Harris, Monte Morris, Jamal Murray, Will Barton, Malik Beasley, those guys can ball. I mean, they're going to be good. They're going to be fun. They're going to be exciting. And Jokic is going to find anyone who has an inch of space when he's got the ball. So, I mean, it almost feels like it'll be Jokic and four guards and they're just going to dare teams to stop them. Um, and they'll just outscore teams as kind of what I think will happen. Um, that does tend to be an issue in the playoffs. And and I think maybe that's a, a part of the reason uh, that we have the Nuggets down at six and not at, say, four, um, because it doesn't seem as tried and true as the five teams in front of them and what they have going on. Moving on to the Utah Jazz, who made a number of moves this season geared at making their offense look better. We were just talking about wing players with the Denver Nuggets, and that brings me to Mike Conley on the Jazz. 
the jump in terms of offensive production from Boyan Bogdanovich and Donovan Mitchell on the wing versus basically every other wing that Mike Conley has played with for his entire career is truly stunning, (laughs) which brings me to a question that I am really hoping that we have a similar answer on. Do you think this is the year that Mike Conley might finally be able to make the Western Conference All-Star game? Yes. And not just because he's got better teammates on a pretty dang good team and a great coach, but one, he's due for a lifetime achievement award. Two, Clay Thompson is a lock every year as a guard and he's injured. Three, I don't think Russ is going to play well enough to make it this year. And that opens a spot for our hero, Mike Conley. One second. I need to clip some explosions from a Fast and Furious movie to drop over that Russell Westbrook take. Oh boy. I What can I say? I, I feel like Conley is it instead of Russ. Speaking of Russell Westbrook, the Portland Trailblazers. <laughs> so Portland sent both of their starting wings from last year's playoff team and really the last few years of playoff teams in Al Farouk Aminu and Maurice Harkless. Both of those guys were among the worst three-point shooters at the forward spots in the NBA, but they were also both sizable wings with really good defensive instincts and pretty good lateral movement. So the team's defense, I think, will unquestionably look a lot worse without Aminu and Harkless on the floor. But what about the team's offense? Because I think they might actually score better this year without those guys failing to space the floor from the forward spots. I honestly don't think Portland is going to be notably different uh, just overall as a team. You know, they brought in, what, Pau Gasol, and he's about 300 years old. Um, You do get the Hassan Whiteside bump, whatever that does to a team. Um, I think they'll be okay overall, but as we've seen or as we just sort of know, the team goes as Dame Lillard goes. So if something happens to him or if he doesn't develop a chemistry or if it turns out Rodney Hood wants to take 16 mid-range jumpers a game, they're going to be in trouble. But I don't expect too much of a difference overall from Portland. Although I think the defensively, I think you're probably right because those guys are, they're all effective and Nurkic being hurt, that's, that's no fun. So I don't think it'll be much different actually. I certainly think that Whiteside can be similar to Nurkic and every other Blazers center in terms of just dropping back and being a tall human being around the rim. But the passing drop-off from Nurkic to Whiteside is appalling. Yes. Anyway, moving on to number nine, the Golden State Warriors. They just waived Alfonso McKinney in favor of signing Marquise Chris to a regular season roster spot. Which is fine on the surface, but McKinney was probably going to be their starting small forward, and obviously now that's not going to be the case. It's probably going to be Glenn Robinson III, but really the biggest question about this team, other than their bench, is what are they going to do at small forward all season long? Great question. Uh, Here's a quick note about Marquise Chris, who they decided to keep. He was barely good enough to play for last season's Cavaliers. I mean, he couldn't start for them, so not a great sign. I still fondly remember the one day on Twitter where Marquise Chris had a ridiculous game, and you and I were just tossing jokes back and forth about how, imagine if he finally hits his (laughs) pre-draft potential, and this is the real Marquise Chris. Oh, man. 
maybe, maybe the Warriors will bring it out of him and we can revisit that conversation. But somehow, I think four years, or I think it's four years now, four years of evidence is maybe hard to argue with. Uh, as far as small forward, I don't know. Can Omari Spellman shoot? Maybe. Omari Spellman weighs more than the Chase Center. I don't think they can play him <laughs> at small forward. I don't think so either. Uh, I think they would flirt with basically just moving Draymond down and having like Kevon Looney and Willie Cauley-Stein play together. No, that's insane. Uh, I have no idea what they're going to do. They might just try to trot out more guards and let Steph score 40 a game until February and hope that they can win 15 straight to make the playoffs when Clay comes back. Moving on to the Boston Celtics, they basically swapped Kyrie Irving for Kemba Walker, which I don't think is that much of a drop-off. But they also swapped Al Horford for effectively Ennis Cantor. And man, that's going to be real rough on the defensive end for them. So I think that this team is still pretty clearly in the middle portion of the Eastern Conference playoff brackets. But I am really worried about their defense. I think that they can maybe make up for losing Horford on the offensive end by sort of a combination of different things. But man, that defense in the front court for the Celtics is going to be real tough to watch this year. If the question is, how can they make up for Al Horford's defense? Uh, the answer is they don't, or they can't. Um, Anis Cantor, uh, great for like fantasy basketball rebounding. Uh, not as great for stopping anyone from scoring. I don't really have any idea what they do. I think maybe if all their young guys, all their wings play to their actual potential, it's the kind of problem you can hide. But yeah, their ceiling is a little lower uh, without an Al Horford type in the middle. The Indiana Pacers are currently going through a lot of talks surrounding trading DeMontis Sabonis. According to recent reporting from Sam Amick at The Athletic, the Pacers and Sabonis have basically hit the stopping point in terms of rookie-scale contract extension negotiation, and it seems like the Pacers are going to be looking to trade Sabonis as soon as possible, maybe even before the season starts. So this sort of brings the whole Miles Turner-Sabonis debate to the forefront. If I were pretty much any NBA team, I would prefer to hold on to Turner over Sabonis, but I think they can both be really impactful frontcourt players. I think really the question all season was just going to be, can the two of them play together? And now it seems like that question is more moving towards what can the Pacers get from Sabonis because it doesn't look like he's going to be there all that much longer. Yeah, and that's such a tough call. I mean, I love Miles Turner. Uh, I just I just get a kick out of him, maybe because he was on my fantasy team last year and he was a stud. Um, but Sabonis, I mean, that dude can pass. He can kind of shoot, but you can put him at the elbow and more or less run the offense through him. And he, and I'm a Cleveland guy, and man, he just ripped up the Cavs every time they played last season. So, I mean, I do wonder what they can get for him because he's good. I mean, there was talks of him possibly making the all-star game last year and he wasn't even starting. So that'll be really interesting to keep an eye on, but it sounds like they're on the, on the Turner train, which is not what anyone has ever called it until right now. Not for only sentimental reasons, but also for basketball reasons. I think the trailblazers should really look into trying to figure out a deal to get Sabonis to Portland. Yeah. I think that would be a great fit. Even 
even after Nurkic gets back, but especially before he gets back, I just don't know if they have the pieces to make that trade. Yeah, that would be a really, that would be pretty cool to see. Moving on to the San Antonio Spurs. They were somehow fifth in the league in offense last season, which doesn't make any sense to me given the way that their offense worked. (laughs) I don't think they can be top five again, just period, especially if they're going to be starting DeJounte Murray, who, even though he's a spectacular defensive player already, his offensive game needs work. How are the Spurs going to keep this going on the offensive end? The same way they did when Tim Duncan retired or Tony Parker left or Ginobili left or Kawhi left, they just are. It doesn't make sense. You won't be able to explain it. They'll win 48 to 52 games and we'll all just scratch our head and go, yeah, okay, Spurs did it again. Moving on to the Brooklyn Nets. Obviously, they had a spectacular and very newsworthy offseason, but the best player from that offseason haul is almost certainly not going to play this season. He, even if he does play, is certainly not going to be playing anytime before March or April. And so I think that leaves the Nets in a pretty similar place, slightly better, but in a pretty pretty similar place to where they were last season. And really the X factor there is going to be the same X factor as it was for the first 15 games of last season, which is what can we expect out of Karis LeVert? It's really interesting. Um, I feel a little bad for him since... Once he came back from the injury, he became the third most interesting guard on their team behind D'Angelo Russell and Spencer Dinwiddie. And then they swapped D'Angelo for Kyrie, effectively. So he's kind of still the third most exciting guard. Um, and he was so good for those first 15 games. It was I think he averaged 20, 20 points, five, uh, four and a half rebounds, four and a half assists, something like that. So the thing to me is whether or not he can shoot. And if he can shoot... I think we can expect a solid season from him. Um, if I think after the injury, he shot maybe low 30s percent from deep. And if that's what Karis LeVert is, uh, I think it's going to be a tough year for him. He's got the perfect kind of herky-jerky game, secondary playmaker type of skill set to be a really good fit as a third star alongside Kyrie and Kevin Durant. The first big question is the shooting, which you already brought up. The second big question is his defense. He looked a lot better, especially down the stretch of last year once he got back and was healthy by playoff time, but he hasn't really got the defensive side of the ball all the way there yet. And with KD coming back from an Achilles injury and Kyrie having never really been all that good of a defender, especially given Levert's size, they really do need him to step it up on the defensive end of the court. But moving on to another Atlantic Division team in the Toronto Raptors, the defending champion Toronto Raptors, which will be true for another two days until the next regular season starts. They'll still be defending champs until until June. Yeah, true. Their odds have gone down maybe a little bit for winning the 2020 title as opposed to where they were last year. A little bit. Really, the question with this team is just going to be whether Pascal Siakam can make that leap into all-star, all-NBA status. And given that the Raptors just gave him a four-year, $130 million extension, they clearly seem to think that that's in the cards for him. They sure do. I'm going to say yes to All-Star and no to All-NBA so far. I would agree. Uh, He's in the East, so the All-Star is not that difficult. Um, It just felt like 
he was inexplicably unstoppable last year. You know, everyone's like, ah, he comes and he plays hard and he plays fast and he spins and he gets to the rim and that's what he does. And you would think people could stop that, but they just haven't been able to yet. Whether he adds, you know, another element or two or whether he doesn't need to is yet to be seen. Um, But he's exciting and he really does go pretty dang hard out there. So I do expect him to be at the very least a fringe all-star this year. And I do expect, I think he'll make it. Moving on to number 15, the Miami Heat. There's been a whole lot of buzz surrounding this Heat team in terms of a Chris Paul trade. I think this is a lot less likely now given the extension, but certainly before that extension, I thought it would also have been interesting for Miami to explore a Kyle Lowry trade. Basically, I think where it comes down to for me with this Heat team is that they're in the bottom of the Eastern Conference playoff standings and are definitely the team that will mortgage the future for some good players now with Pat Riley in the GM seat. So do you think a Chris Paul or Kyle Lowry trade is coming? Or alternatively, do you think there's another superstar slash high-level player trade that the Heat are going to look to make with all their expiring contracts? I don't think there's anybody else. So I think if it were anyone, it would be Chris Paul. Um and like you said, they have the expiring contracts to do it between, uh, I think, just Goran Dragic and James Johnson together would would cover the Lowry contract. And if you add in someone, uh, someone very small, like uh, or a small contract, like Tyler Hero or uh, Bam Adebayo, but I can't imagine that they're not trading either of those guys for anything. I I don't think so either. I don't think so either, but I'm just, you know, thinking of small contracts on there, except if you're Oklahoma City, you you got to want somebody good other than just cap relief. Um, so I don't know. I do think they will probably go for it, but it'll be a weird trade because, like you said, they don't want to trade their young assets and OKC should want those young assets. So it'll be a it'll be Pat Riley negotiating against himself. Moving on to the Orlando Magic at number 16. I think the question here is pretty simple for me, which is basically just, is their defense real? They were, I think, the number one defense last year after February 1st. If they weren't number one, it was certainly something like that, where the last couple months of the season, Orlando was just impossible to score on. And I think that they do have some kinds of tools on the defensive end in terms of players like Aaron Gordon and Jonathan Isaac, where I think they're still going to be a really solid defense, but I don't think they're going to be the best defense in the NBA for an extended stretch of time like they were last year. Yeah, I think some of that um, is the just anomalies of an NBA season. Uh, I do think they're a good defense, um, but I can't imagine they're going to finish top five um, just because it feels like they have a couple of weak spots if and honestly I have no idea what's going to happen if Markel Fultz plays but it feels like he's going to and I don't know if he's a good defender because I haven't seen him play in the NBA DJ Augustine I think is still their starting point guard and he's fine but he's getting a little long in the tooth um they do have a lot of good big guys uh a lot of good both way big guys but someone's got to stop him up front and I don't really have the the faith that Augustine or Fultz or I think Evan Fournier is still there? Um, or am I wrong on Evan Fournier? No, he's still there. 
okay, yeah, I, you know, he's fine. I don't think he's going to tear the league apart in steals or anything like that. So I think they'll be good, not great. Well, if you're talking about tearing the league apart in steals, Michael Carter-Williams is still on that roster. Oh, thank goodness. I saw him almost get in a fight with uh, Tyler Hero the other night. That was fun. I feel like Tyler Hero is going to almost get in a fight with at least like 30 players this season. That's my bold prediction for the Miami Heat is that he gets ejected or gets into a fist fight. Man, I think it would be really fun to just like have... And this this sounds like I just want the white guys to fight, but like have Grayson <laughs> Allen trip Tyler Hero coming around oh the screen. Oh, that would be just the thrill of a lifetime. And then just like watch NBA Twitter explode. I feel like Grayson Allen is definitely not about that life, but Tyler Hero would absolutely punch his face For in. For sure. Can we get Matthew Delavadova Dele involved? Oh, man. No, Delavadova's got to come in like after they're like midway through the fight and then just tackle both of them and he's, wreck their entire careers. He's going to dive for a loose ball and uh, take them both out. And then Patrick Beverly is going to snipe their knees out from the stands. Ah, <laughs> uh, we can dream, can't we? Oh, uh, yeah. Speaking of we can dream, sort of, I guess, moving on to the Dallas Mavericks, who certainly have a top two-man rotation of maybe white guys that aren't likely to punch each other in the face during an NBA game, but I wouldn't put it past Chris Stapps at all. <laughs> the problem that I have with Dallas is I just don't know what they're going to look like on the wing. Obviously, Luka is sort of a hybrid point guard slash wing player, but between guys like Dorian Finney-Smith, Courtney Lee, and Seth Curry, it feels like they're going to have to choose between either shooting or defense for the guys that they're putting out there on the wing. And I think this team would be really helped by having at least a couple of guys who can do both. And maybe that'll be Finney Smith if he can get a better handle on his jump shot. But outside of that, this team is a bit thin at the shooting guard small forward spots. Here's how I know they're thin in that area. Uh, as I was thinking about their wing, their wing situation, I looked at their depth chart on ESPN. And ESPN has Justin Jackson as their starter at small forward. And I really racked my brain, and I I realized, I don't know who Justin Jackson is. Hi, and I'm a Kings fan. I am a fan of the team that drafted Justin Jackson. Uh-huh. I really did not like watching him play for the Kings. He at least gave effort on the defensive end, but he's one of the skinniest wings I've ever seen. Uh-huh. And he's just good enough from three-point range to get your hopes up for a couple of weeks after a hot stretch but he is not a reliable shooter at all. So if he does end up starting for them at small forward on opening night, I would be even more concerned than I already am. That checks out. Uh, it sounded like you just described Brandon Ingram, a super skinny wing who occasionally makes some threes, gets her hopes up and then disappears. Well, the difference is Ingram is really good with the ball in his hands, whereas Justin Jackson looks really lost with the ball in his hands. Well, then I guess we have our answer that the Mavericks are a little, they are a little thin on the wing. Well, let's move on to a team that is really not all that thin anywhere, which is shocking for me to be able to say about the Sacramento Kings. They kind of run 11 deep in a way that makes me really hopeful, given how this team was at their best last season when they were running and gunning. And their new coach in Luke Walton is someone who's put a lot of emphasis on that in the past. My big question is, what's this team's defense going to look like under Walton? Because the underrated story about Luke Walton is that he was actually a much better defensive coach for the Lakers than he was an offensive coach. So the Luke Walton thing is tricky because it's hard to decide what we give him credit for and what we 
give the team credit for. Because um, when you coach a LeBron team, you just get you get no credit for the good things and you get all the credit for the bad things. So it's confusing. Um, there were a lot of good defensive players when they wanted to be on that Lakers team. So I just don't know what to expect at all. Um, I know we're going to get back to the Kings, so I don't want to take too much time on them, but um, it does feel like they have enough athletes to to be solid on defense. Um, but we'll get back to them because I have some question marks about the Kings. Moving on to a team that I have certainly a number of question marks about and a number more than the rest of my Power Rankings colleagues, the Atlanta Hawks. So we will get to the Hawks in more detail in a later section. So I just wanted to give you the floor and I will take the floor for myself as well to just praise Vince Carter uninterrupted for the next approximately minute and a half. I'm probably older than you. So Vince Carter happened when I was about middle school age. And I cannot tell you how cool the University of North Carolina basketball team was because of Vince Carter. And I am now like an adult who mowed the lawn today and had to run errands because it's Sunday and Vince Carter's still in the NBA and he's still dunking and he's still cool. Uh, He's incredible. I love him. I was just overjoyed that Vince Carter decided to make Sacramento one of his end of career veteran player stops just so that I could get myself a Vince Carter jersey and show up to a Kings game and hope that he got at least five minutes or so on the court where I could watch him maybe throw down a throwback dunk, maybe just chuck up a couple of three-pointers. It's remarkable to me just how incredibly well he has transitioned to being a role player in the league after being such a transcendent superstar. And not just a transcendent superstar, but a transcendent superstar in the way that he was so cool, in the way he made the University of North Carolina so cool, in the way he made the Toronto Raptors so cool. And it's just so much fun to get to see Vince Carter on the court for another season and the way that he has changed his reputation after maybe getting a little bit of flack, I don't know, for how he left Toronto. I think there were some mm-hmm. people, maybe a couple, that were a little upset about that. Yeah. But but the Definitely. way that he has just accepted being a veteran role player in this league and teaching the young players, and there was not a single Kings player during Vince Carter's time in Sacramento that had anything but the most positive things to say about him as a veteran, as a person. And I am just really happy to be able to watch him for another NBA season. And Hawks fans, we will talk about your team later, but I'm not going to miss this opportunity to praise Vince Carter one last time. (laughs) Nor should you. He's a hero. Moving on to the Detroit Pistons. Blake Griffin had an incredible season last year. He was an all-NBA player after I certainly thought that his all-NBA days were over. And the Pistons snuck into the eighth seed in the playoffs Griffin only played two of their four playoff games and was hurt during those two games. And without a healthy Blake Griffin, the Pistons were historically waxed by the Milwaukee Bucks in the opening round of the playoffs. Really, for me, I think that the entirety of the Detroit Pistons playoff hopes rest on Blake Griffin's shoulders. So the question with them is, can he carry him back there? For his sake, I hope so. And for everybody else's sake, I hope not. (laughs) Um, There's... They're just like, did anyone on the Detroit Pistons smile last year? 
they just look miserable. Um, I, let me let me rephrase that. They look miserable unless Blake is playing really well. Nobody wants to <laughs> nobody wants to talk about Reggie Jackson. Um, Andre Drummond is fine. He's another guy who's probably pretty good to have on your fantasy team because he's going to put up like 17 and 15 this year and he's going to sit out the fourth quarters of games because he can't make a free throw. So I don't know. Uh, I like Blake Griffin. He seems like a fun guy. Uh, I feel bad for him for signing a five-year deal and then promptly getting traded. So I wish good things upon him, but like the Pistons are, they've got to be at the bottom of the league pass rankings. They're just a snooze fest. I was going to say that if Blake Griffin misses any time, then this team would hit the bottom of the league pass rankings, but Charlotte and Washington still exist. So I can't really say that. True. Moving on to the Minnesota Timberwolves. This, I think, really just comes down to, is this the year that Carl Anthony Towns establishes himself as a perennial All-NBA center? Because he's only gotten one All-NBA berth during his career so far. And I think a lot of that comes down to Tom Thibodeau maybe not exactly coaching this team towards Carl Anthony Towns' strengths. That doesn't seem like a problem that Ryan Saunders is going to have. So if Cat really is one of these kind of historic unicorn type players that is a clear hall of famer and maybe has a case for the top hundred, top 50 or so. I think this is really going to be the year that we're going to need to see that he's going to need to be at least average on defense. And if he's average on defense and the team plays through him on offense, this is really going to be the year where we find out not just what kind of player Carl Anthony Towns is going to be for the next few years, I think, But really, I think this is going to be where we start to get an idea of where he's going to end up standing historically. I agree. And I do think this is this has got to be uh, the year that we really are just like, wow, this guy's incredible. But I do want to push back a little bit. As you said, he's only got one all NBA so far. He's only been in the league four seasons, man. Give the guy a break. (laughs) He's he's turning 24 in like three weeks. Um, So. I think it's more that he didn't get there last year after having been there previously. That's true. So you're absolutely right. It's unfair to pile on for him for not getting enough All-NBA selections. It's just more the timing of those All-NBA selections that makes me feel like he kind of took a little bit of a step back. True. And the the tough part for him is that after, I guess, maybe the... 2013 to 2016 stretch where it felt like, oh, the league is just going to be all six foot nine guys who can shoot. There are a ton of good centers right now in the NBA. So he's got some major competition, but I do think that, yeah, I think he's got to be top of the top of the crop. I mean, he's, he's a 39% career three point shooter. That's insane. Moving on to the New Orleans Pelicans and unfortunately huge buzzkill news after Zion Williamson's ridiculous preseason that looks like he's going to miss at least a couple of weeks with knee soreness. But his impact is, I think, going to be more on the offensive end just because he's already pretty close to unstoppable there. But I want to talk about the defense for this team. Derek Favors was the best big minute rim protector in the league last season. And now he's going to be playing almost exclusively center as opposed to being kind of shoehorned into weird lineups alongside Rudy Gobert. They have Drew Holiday and Lonzo Ball as their two guard defenders, and they might end up being two of the four all-defensive guards by the end of this season. Do you think the Pelicans can find their way into being a top-10 defense, or do they just not have enough defensive 
pieces outside of the top three guys I just mentioned. Well, they do have Jaleel Okafor, and, and we know he is a defensive stalwart. Um, no, I I do think so. I think it's a it's just a really solid defense. I mean, I guess you have a weak spot with JJ Redick, um, but you can hide him enough. I feel like JJ Redick is just the carbon copy of Kyle Korver, but four years younger or five years younger. And Korver is a bad one-on-one defender, but he's fine as a team defender. The big difference there is that Korver has three or four inches on him. True. That's a good point. Um, I do think that, but I don't think Redick is going to play 40 minutes a game and be enough to, to bring their defense down that much. So I do think it's going to be a really, a really tough defense. I mean, Drew Holiday is just a machine and, you know, you stop a you stop a snake by cutting off its head, and he's the head of the snake. To nope, I got that metaphor backwards. Uh, he's he's gonna stop the ball and stop the head of the snake. There we go. Took a couple tries. We got there. Yeah. Moving on to the Oklahoma City Thunder, we have them ranked at number twenty three to start the season. Honestly, I feel like this team could have been anywhere from the low teens to. 28-29, and I would have totally understood. Really, the question is just how long until this team blows it up? Because I think it'll be difficult for them to find a taker for Chris Paul, especially since they have absolutely no reason to just salary dump him. They would have to be giving back positive assets in return for him, and that's going to be a really hard trade to find. So maybe Chris Paul doesn't get traded before the end of the season, but Danilo Gallinari is a virtual lock to get moved pretty early on, if not right after that December 15th deadline when some of last offseason signings become eligible for trade. So really the question is how long until Sam Presti presses detonate and how many of the veterans on this team end up getting shipped out before the trade deadline? Well, like you said, it's probably December 15th. Um, But if you don't mind me saying, isn't Chris Paul and Steven Adams a possibility to be an unbelievable pick and roll combo. Like absolutely, until the, which is why it's hard for me to, yeah. Until December 15th, right. You know, maybe even after, I mean, Steven Adams is on a pretty pricey contract too. He might be difficult to trade as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's kind of good that, that, you know, the December 15th date is there because I wouldn't be that surprised if they win some games in the first month and look like an, pretty okay team as far as can they find a taker for Chris Paul I mean that contract is insane um so it's got to be someone reckless like Miami um I know there's been talk about maybe Orlando in the past because they're going on three decades of no point guard but they would have to give up way too much I think so I it doesn't look real good I'll say this if they don't trade either Chris Paul or Steven Adams I think that this team is like a 10 or 11 seed in the West. But if they trade either of those guys, their offense and defense are going to nosedive pretty significantly. Definitely. So I think it's just a wait and see kind of deal with the Thunder. But moving on to the Chicago Bulls, Zach Levine had a career year on the offensive end last year. And I don't, think it's a coincidence that Lowry Markkinen also was a bit of a disappointment on the offensive end after a solid freshman offensive season. (laughs) I am worried about how those two players fit together on the offensive end because 
Levine really needs to be a better passer or creator for others to take advantage of Markkinen's skills. And if Markkinen doesn't have the ball in his hands at all because of Levine and Kobe White, he might have another sort of stagnant year on offense. So I guess the question for me is, how will Jim Boylan work to get Zach Levine and Lowry Markkinen to coexist better together on that end of the floor? Because defensively, those two will never coexist together, and that's just kind of how it is. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, I think part of it will be a little more continuity. I think Markkinen, so Markkinen, I think, missed 30 games last year, um, so he dealt with some injury stuff, and I just feel like a, a solid offseason of being healthy could turn the corner a little bit for them. Um, we've kind of been waiting for Zach Levine to put it all together for his entire career now. So I think we're pretty much dealing with what he is. Um, but I think health will be a big deal and there's not going to be a lot of pressure on anybody on that team, partially because they're bad, but partially because they got a bunch of guys. I mean, Levine, Lowry, you got Otto Porter. Um, <laughs> there's, there's some buzz for some reason about Tom, uh, Tomas Sadoransky. Um, so, you know, the East is bad and the Bulls are only kind of bad. So I think if Levine and Markkinen can, I don't know, I, I don't know if there's a pick and pop game to be had there or not, but if they can develop some kind of chemistry, the Bulls could, I can't believe I'm saying this, sniff toward the playoffs in the East, which isn't really saying much, I guess. Actually, it's saying a whole lot and it's saying a whole lot about the quality of the Eastern Conference. <laughs> that is true. Moving on to the Phoenix Suns, I think this question sounds a little bit meaner than I intended to, but can this team win 30 games? They won 19 last year, but they literally did not have an NBA point guard on the roster, and now they do with Ricky Rubio, and they have Dario Saric, who's at least a professional who can play the power forward for them. I don't know. This team just feels a lot less disastery than it did last season. But winning 30 games would be an 11 win increase for this team. And expecting an 11 win increase from a Robert Sarver owned franchise is just a bad idea for your own personal health. That is true. But here's what I'm saying. You, you want them to win 30. I want them to win 50. No, um, I do. I do really like Ricky Rubio. Um, just. I just like watching him play, and I think he'll open things up a little bit. He takes pressure off of Booker having the ball, and honestly, I think he'll throw a couple of alley-oops a game to DeAndre uh, Ayton. Um, so I think that's going to be good. He can also, like you said, they didn't have a point guard last year, and Rubio is like a real point guard who can play point guard defense and pass the ball. Um, so the way you said that kind of made me... <laughs> made me realize, oh my gosh, that is an 11-win increase, and that's a lot. Um, but 30 seems possible. I don't know. They do have five guys that are real NBA-caliber players, I think, and that seems better than a few of the teams below them on the list, so maybe they can win 30. Well, let's get to one of those teams right now in the Memphis Grizzlies, and it's pretty hard for me to see the Grizzlies climbing out of the 15th spot in the West this season, despite having what I thought was one of the best off seasons of any team in the league. My question for them is pretty simple, which is can John Morant win rookie of the year? And I wouldn't have been as eager to ask that question three or four days ago, but if Zion Williamson is going to miss a significant amount of time, 
John Morant is going to have the ball in his hands as much as he wants to have the ball in his hands. He's a ridiculous athlete and has the best passing vision of any prospect to enter the league in the last five years other than Trey Young and Luka Doncic in my mind. He can really pass, and he had no one to pass it to last year. And he doesn't have all that much more this year, but at least he has Jaron Jackson Jr. and Brandon Clark and NBA players to throw the ball to rather than Murray State guys. So do you think that John Moran has any chance of rookie of the year or is it basically Zions unless he misses more than the couple weeks that he's slated to miss at the moment? I think it's more the latter. I think it's Zions unless, did I say Zion? You say the park Zion. His name is Zion. Anyway, uh, I think it's Zions unless the injuries do hold him out. And I don't really trust that he'll come back in two weeks and then just play the rest of the season. I mean, he's got quite an injury history for being like 19 years old. Um, So I think it can go to John Morant um, for all the reasons you said. He's just a good player. And when you're starting on a bad team, um, up until like the last couple of years, that has felt like a pretty darn good way to win rookie of the year. Um, Big stats, bad team. You got the ball in your hand. You can do some things. If they win more than like 12 games, he's going to finish in the top three, I think. And that's the other concern is the wrong word, but thought that I have about Zion's campaign for rookie of the year. New Orleans just has so many more players that deserve to have the ball in their hands than the Grizzlies do. Right. And even then the Knicks do when we talk about RJ Barrett, who I think is the third player that has any sort of chance at this rookie of the year award. The Knicks and the Grizzlies are going to force feed the two of them pretty exclusively, whereas Zion has some other teammates in Drew Holiday and Lonzo Ball and even Brandon Ingram to a certain extent that really should have some offensive creating onus placed on them. Definitely. Let's move on to the Washington Wizards. And the thing to discuss with them is Bradley Beal signing a two-year max extension with them. This, to me, sort of just seems like it fits in line with a lot of what John Wall has been saying recently and Beal to a lesser extent, but certainly based on the fact that he signed this extension, it seems like he is thinking along the same lines. And what John Wall was saying is basically, you know, we want to have one more chance with this Wizards team with the two of us. You know, don't just blow it up before I can come back from my injury. So... With the new extension, Beal's contract timeline lines up with John Wall's. So really what it seems like is they're going to give one more try at keeping the band together, which is going to be next season for them. And this year will be what it is for Washington. It'll be rough. Rough is one word. (laughs) Here's what I think about Bradley Beal. A lot of us maybe not us people who follow the NBA really closely, but a lot of casual NBA fans will hear someone demand a trade or something like that. And they'll get all indignant and be like, man, if I were in the NBA making $25 million a year, I'd just be happy to be playing basketball and making $25 million. And Bradley Beal gets offered a huge contract extension to stay on a garbage team. And he's like, you know what? I'm happy to make $30 million playing in the NBA. I'm going to sign this contract. And If that's what's happening, great. More power to him. That always really upsets me, actually, when people side with the owners so much more frequently than they side with the players. Me too. I get the whole, (laughs) you know, 
rooting for your team thing and therefore being against players that go against your team's interests. But man, if you're ever siding with the interests of the owners over the interests of the players, you're probably not the kind of person I want to spend a lot of time with. Probably not. The billionaires deserve your support. (laughs) Speaking of the billionaires, 100% do not deserve your support. James Dolan and the New York Knicks. Ah, yes. I think the question here is, can Julius Randle put up a piggish enough season to make it to the All-Star team? And I hate saying that because Julius Randle is a kind of fun player and I don't have anything against him, but really that would just be, if he makes the All-Star team, it's just going to be, he shoots the ball like every single time. He puts up a 25 and 10 on like 30 shots a game. (laughs) And the depressed Knicks fans that just have nothing else to root for in their lives are just like, let's send Julius Randle to the All-Star game. And that's just kind of what happens. It feels possible. It really does. does. And I hate insulting the Knicks because I'm actually from New York, but the James Dolan Knicks deserve all the hatred that anyone can give them. They really do. So correct me if I'm wrong, there will be, what, nine front court spots on the All-Star team? Is that right? I think so. I think that's how it works. Well, because there are the wild card spots that can go to either front court guys or back court guys. And those usually go to back court guys because it's harder to fill out those spots. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> like the, the last two Eastern Conference All-Stars are going to be in the Jamal McGlure All-Star category or the Chris Kamen All-Star category. Yeah. Or the soon to be Julius Randle All-Star category. There you go. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there's like there's like five guys that you're pretty confident are going to make the Eastern All-Stars like uh Embiid I do think Pascal's gonna make it Giannis uh I think Andre Drummond will be there because he'll be putting up ridiculous stats um probably Vucevic Vucevic again Blake Griffin if he's healthy maybe Tobias Harris and suddenly we're getting up near that number um if Jason Tatum actually plays well he's in um I don't remember if Jimmy Butler counts as a guard or a front court but if he's a small forward okay he's probably in maybe Miles Turner, someone like that, or or Mount Mitch Tumbo from the New York Knicks. Um, I love how you said Mitchell Robinson before Ben Simmons. Did I? Oh, yeah. Well, okay, wait a minute. What, what position does Ben Simmons count as? Who knows, man? I think next season he probably counts as point guard because everyone in that lineup is 6'6 or taller, so someone has to be called the point guard. Yeah. Okay. I'm not crazy. If I if I thought of Simmons as a front court player, I would have listed him way earlier. Um, I think of him as a guard for nonsensical reasons, I guess. Well, so do the Sixers. So that's oh good. <laughs> anyway, moving on to your Cleveland Cavaliers, and I'm wearing a Cavs hoodie right now, so I'm ready for this conversation. All right. Well, there's really one big conversation to have with this Cavs team, which is how much will Darius Garland and Colin Sexton play together? And can they work together long term? Because offensively, I think the answer is maybe. And defensively, I think the answer is what is defense? This is the Cleveland Cavaliers we're talking about. Oh, man, are they going to be bad on defense? That is going to be fun. There's going to be a lot of like 125, 115 games uh, on the Cavs docket this year that's the end of the first half right yes exactly um or it'll be the opponent's first half total and the Cavs four quarters total um 
I don't think it's going to work out together that much. Um, I think Garland's got the higher ceiling. I don't think I'm crazy saying that. Um, Sexton feels like a sixth man because he's not that good of a passer. Um, he's a super high energy guy and it seems like Garland is a little more slow and measured. So having two guys that are like six foot two or shorter playing in the backcourt at completely different styles really doesn't strike me as a winning, uh, winning, uh, design. Um, but I don't know. The second half Sexton last year was much better than, uh, than like his season long stats looked. Second half Sexton was a solid NBA player. First half Sexton did not deserve to play NBA basketball. Exactly. First half Colin Sexton was worse than a G league player. Like I'm not trying to be mean. He just was. That is true. No, he, he was, as of like January 1st, if the season ended then, he would have had the worst season in NBA history by win shares and stuff like that. I mean, he was a nightmare. Um, but then he just started making threes, and it didn't really look sustainable, but he made them for like three and a half months, so who knows? If he can keep making threes, I think you're absolutely right. He could be a really solid sixth man, especially given his energy, which... Maybe doesn't always show up in good defense, but definitely shows up on the offensive end all the time. That is true. Let's close out this list with the Charlotte Hornets. My question with them is, can Malik Monk find his way into the rotation? Because this kind of feels like it's his last stand in Charlotte. If he can't get consistent playing time on this Charlotte team, maybe that's kind of it for him. And maybe he signs a minimum deal with another NBA team who kind of figures out how to use him. But if he doesn't put it together this year for this Charlotte team, I would start getting really worried about Malik Monk's NBA future. Yeah, it actually reminds me a little bit of that Marquise Chris thing that I mentioned earlier, uh, where Chris could barely play for the Cavs, but somehow ends up with the Warriors. I don't know. Um, It feels like everyone's last chance is in Charlotte lately. Um, they just go there to fade into the sunset like a beautiful farm off in the country for a pet on a TV show. If you're cruel enough to send your pet to the Charlotte Hornets to die, man, you don't deserve to have pets in the first place. That is a really strong point. Um, I don't know. I think part of it with Monk is that look what he's going to be surrounded by here. He's going to be surrounded by the 180 billion combined dollars of Nick Batum, Bismarck Biombo, and Marvin Williams, and he's going to have Terry Rogier shooting the ball 36 times a game. Whoa, hold on, hold on, hold on. Joey said no Terry Rozier slander, so slander the entire rest of the Charlotte Hornets <laughs> roster. They certainly deserve it. You know, I'm actually, I live in the town that Terry Rozier grew up in. He went to high school here. Uh, so I feel like I'm allowed to make uh, bold statements about him. Um, cause if he comes home to his high school basketball games, it'll be like two miles from my house. That doesn't really mean anything. I think he's still going to shoot 30 times a game and score like 22 points a game. So I don't know. I think Malik Monk is just, he's just stuck. And I, I wonder, could he be better somewhere else? I, I don't know that anyone's going to give him the chance if he doesn't perform now though. And I don't see a great situation for him to perform. And on that incredibly happy note, let's (laughs) move on to the next section of this. So before we wrap up today, I just kind of wanted to go through a couple of 
strange trends or biggest surprises from this first version of the power rankings. And the first one is one that came up earlier, which maybe isn't really a surprise or a strange trend at all, but only two of the top nine teams and only four of the top 12 teams on this list are from the Eastern Conference. So I know it's a theme every year that the West is so much stronger than the East, but somehow that feels even more true than usual this season. It does. Uh, The way to really see it is like, you could talk yourself into some really pretty brutal teams making the Eastern Conference playoffs. Uh, I mean, like I said, Detroit is not fun. They might make the East. Uh, Chicago, if Chicago gets hot for like three weeks, they could make the playoffs. I mean, it's just ugly. And, you know, I heard something the other day that I didn't really think of, but the flattening out the lottery odds might actually make the West get even better because you get these decent middle-of-the-road West teams that can win 40 games, and suddenly they have a shot at, like, a number one draft pick. And it's like, oh, man, this 40-win team in, you know, whatever, and it can be New Orleans or whoever it is, or Dallas – suddenly gets another stud it's like oh man things are just gonna look bad for the east forever here's the thing that's been true for the last 10 years it's just gonna be even worse now it's just gonna be more true right they they have more they're more likely to get those better picks i mean we had chicago at number 24 on these power rankings and we're talking about them being an eastern conference playoff contender meanwhile the team directly in front of them the oklahoma city thunder if they were in the East, we wouldn't be talking about them making trades at all because they'd be competing for home court advantage. For sure. I would take a Chris Paul, Steven Adams, Gallo team over, I don't know, well, clearly over the Bulls because we ranked them ahead of the Bulls. <laughs> Ugh. It's gross. Well, let's move back to the Western Conference then and talk about the biggest discrepancy on the board for any of our power rankings writers. And so since I'm a Kings fan, Kevin, I just wanted to give you this opportunity to tell everybody why you hate the city of Sacramento, why you hate deer and Fox, why you hate Vladdy Divots, why you want buddy healed to not sign his extension and get traded anywhere in the world, because clearly you just hate the Sacramento Kings. You had them seven spots lower than anyone else on the power rankings. So If you want to apologize to me, now's the time. Well, let me just say it is completely and 100% personal that I did this. Okay, that makes makes a lot more sense, honestly. Yeah. um, No, it's – I feel bad about it if that makes you feel any better. Um, I think there's a couple things at play. I think one is that I have a tougher time ranking a, like, non – playoff western team because i don't think they're quite in the playoffs so then i start talking myself into like well so what am i really ranking on it i i do think they're better than the teams i do think they're better than the bulls i think they're better they're gonna beat the pistons head to head but i think there's a higher ceiling for the pistons because if blake has a good season they're gonna be a seven seed in the playoffs and i think if everything 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 breaks right for the kings they're probably still an eighth seed. Um, And not that there's anything wrong with that, of course, Um, but it feels like they don't have the like superstar upside 
that a lot of those other like 15 to 23 ish teams have, you know, Atlanta, you can say Trey young is going to just have a monster season. They're going to be incredible. Orlando had this bizarre run of the best defense in the NBA. Detroit has that Blake Griffin thing where if he stays good, he, or he stays healthy, they're great. Dallas has this Porzingis Luca thing where if they get it going, like that team's going to be incredible. Same with Minnesota. Um, and I feel like, because Sacramento is a lot of good players and no like superstar that's driving the show. And and maybe De'Aaron Fox makes another big jump and maybe he is that superstar. Um, But it feels more to me like they're a bunch of really good players and that's great. Um, But it lowers the ceiling that teams that have these guys who are looking like they could be mega stars. Those teams can get to that higher level than the king so maybe it's just a a distorted sense of what a team ceiling could be i don't know does any of that make sense it does i mean i can definitely understand why the kings are difficult to rank just because i think there are a few teams really there are three teams for me that sort of fall into this bucket dallas sacramento and minnesota where they're very solid teams that would be clear playoff teams in the eastern conference but are kind of more on the outside looking in to the Western Conference. Yes. Now, I did want to push back on one thing, which is the De'Aaron Fox thing. And you mentioned Trey Young, and we're actually about to talk about the Atlanta Hawks. So let's sort of make that transition now. And I think the way to start here is I think that De'Aaron Fox might not have the same ceiling necessarily as Trey Young, but I think right now he's a better player just because He is, I would say, average defensively. He has the tools to be an all-defensive team kind of player, just with how ludicrously fast he is. I just don't think he's gotten the defensive chops quite there yet. He's got the physical stuff down. He's still working on the mental side of it. But Fox, I think, is about an average defensive player. Trey Young was the worst defensive player in basketball last year, and I'm (laughs) saying this talking to someone who watched a lot of Colin Sexton play. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, and that I think sums up what I'm actually getting to here, which is that I am significantly lower on the Hawks than anyone else in our hashtag basketball power rankings. So I'm in a similar spot to where you were with the Kings. But for me with the Hawks, first of all, they outplayed their point differential last year. They won 29 games, but they had the point differential of a 24-win team. And Dwayne Dedman went from the Hawks to the Kings He was a very good defensive center for them who also could space the floor for them a little bit. And they might have the worst interior defense in the league this year without Dwayne Dedman around. So I had the Hawks a lot lower than the rest of you. I think just because I am all the way out on their defense, I think they might even challenge Cleveland for the worst defense in the league this year. I don't know, man. Alex Len at center, that doesn't strike fear into the heart of someone driving to the lane? Nope. Speak for yourself, I guess. <laughs> I will speak for myself and say that Alex Len did not scare me if Marvin Bagley is driving the lane for the Sacramento Kings against the Hawks. I guess that's fair. Um, no, I, I you're right. Um, and I think what it comes back to for me in ranking things is, um, I guess maybe my ranking reflected more how I think these teams will end up doing rather than how good each team is which is probably an error on my part um because i think it's more likely that the hawks end up with 40 wins than the 
Well, I don't even know if that's true. They're close. Um, but I will say real quick, I'm looking at the basketball reference uh, page for the 2020 Atlanta Hawks. And I just thought I saw a typo because you're looking at like, um, you know, you've got the player, height, weight, position, birth date, experience, and college. And I was looking at uh, just uh, Alex Len. I was like, oh, six years. And then I looked down and I saw a 21 in the experience column. And I was like, well, that's got to be a typo. But no, it's just Vince Carter. Yep, there it is. <laughs> Guy's incredible. I don't know. We can get back to that if you want. But no, I, I do think the Hawks are, the Hawks have a chance to to be pretty wild um, between these these Trey Young, John Collins, um, Alan Crabb's going to show up and just rip threes if he ever plays again. It seems like he's got a banged up knee. Plus Chandler Parsons. I mean, come on, he's a stud. All right. Anything else you want to go over before we wrap things up here? Um, I'm going to make one bold prediction, and that is that if Kevin Love doesn't get traded early in the season, uh, he's going to put up like a 20 and 10 and make the All-Star game again. I actually really want that to happen. I do too. Give me a reason to go to some games. <laughs> well, there isn't really much of a better place to wrap it up than there. So Kevin, thank you so much for joining today. You can find Kevin on Twitter at Kevin P Nye, K E V I N P N Y E. And of course you can find his written work on the hashtag basketball website. You can also find my written work on the hashtag basketball website. And of course, thanks to Kevin who is, also my editor, so he makes sure that most of the things that I put up on the website are not thoroughly abysmal. If you've been enjoying the podcast, again, please take the time to leave a rating or a review. Please also reach out via email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com if you have any feedback. Certainly now in particular, since I'm going to be trying to do something a little bit different with the podcast, especially for the first couple months of the season, any thoughts on those changes, please let me know. And as always, thanks so much for listening.